Revelation chapter 20, we're continuing uh, to look at the, the millennium and Satan, the defeat. We're going to look at the final defeat of Satan, his activity during the millennium, his final defeat cast into the lake of fire. And I think we're on Satan and Satanism number eight. But I'm just going to read from Revelation. We'll continue from where we left off this, this morning. <coughs> then he saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. <coughs> he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, for their witness to Jesus said, for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who takes part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan shall be released from his prison, and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. <coughs> they went up on the breadth of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then verse 14, the death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So we're in the middle of a point, point number one of what we were looking at before. The Bible accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit will go forth to all nations. The gift of Jesus Christ and the perfect salvation will go forth to the four corners of planet Earth. The nations will be transformed by the gospel and will look to God's perfect moral law as the foundation of their law orders. So Yahweh's plans and Jesus' command, Matthew 28, 18-20, carried out faithfully by the church, is the basis of Christendom. And Europe was this way, and North America was this way at one time, and people followed the Ten Commandments, and people who were not Christians still kind of assumed the Christian law order because that was the, the pervading world and life view. That's gone now. It's gone for most people now. Uh, you want to murder your baby? You want to kill your baby so you can be a slut? Hey, go ahead. Everything now is secular humanism, atheism, uh, and it, we're seeing the results of that in our elections, as we recently saw. <clears throat> This plan, gospel preaching, discipling the nations, is the only way to turn people from the power of Satan to God, from darkness to light, Acts 26.18, Ephesians 2.1-10, from the lies of the devil to the truth, 1 John 2.27. Paul says, <clears throat> we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. So, what is the goal of the Great Commission? To pro promote obedience of individuals, families, and nations. Second, the binding of Satan, this is the time, the binding of Satan lasts from the resurrection of Christ through almost the whole of the gospel era until he is briefly released for, right before the second coming of Christ. This interpretation is understood only 
if we take the thousand years in Revelation 20 as symbolic and not literal. <clears throat> and let me explain why we are not to take it literally, why we are to take it symbolically. <clears throat> that the millennium is not a literal thousand years, but rather is an indefinite lengthy period of time, is established by the following interpretive considerations. Number one, in biblical numerology, the number 10 indicates a fullness of quantity or completeness. For example, the Ten Commandments are a summary of the whole moral law. Now, multiplications of 10, 10 times 10 times 10, are used to designate a very lengthy period of time. In Jesus' reign, his kingdom has lasted for 2,000 years already. Almost 2,000 years. Number two. Scripture uses the numerology of a thousand in this manner in Psalm 50, verse 10, where we are told that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Does that mean that God does not own the cattle on all the hills? Or the cattle on the thousandth and one or two hill? And the answer is absolutely not. It means God owns all the cattle. <clears throat> he owns all the cattle on all the hills. Several thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hills on planet Earth. There are an incredible number of hills in this world with a vast number of cattle. Deuteronomy 1, 11, 7, 9, Psalm 68, 17, 84, 10, 90, Psalm 94. The millennium, the millennium then, is a very lengthy, nonspecific period of time. Number three, if the thousand years was meant to be taken literally, then one could calculate the very year, month, and almost the very day of Christ's second coming. We know when Jesus was born within six months or so. He's born around 4 or 5 B.C. We know when he died. He was 30 years of age. He died in the spring. In fact, we know when he died very specifically. So if you add a thousand years to his, uh, <clears throat> if, well, if you added a thousand years, you would know the day or the hour. But Jesus said, no one knows the day except God the Father. Matthew 24, 36. Given these exegetical considerations, the thousand years refers to a lengthy period of time between Jesus' ascension to glory and the loosing of Satan for a little while. Verse 3. Number 4. The final and conclusive defeat of Satan occurs at the second coming when Satan and his forces are cast into the lake of fire. <clears throat> Revelation 20, verse 10, 14, 15, 21, 8. While the devil and the demons can temporarily be led out of the abyss... Revelation 9, 1 to 11, and 27 to 9, and of course Jude 9, to work chaos, evil, and punishment on earth, they can never do anything after being cast into the lake of fire. Remember, the lake, the, the, the abyss is a prison. And we saw in Revelation chapter 9 that the abyss is opened up and the demons are let out to punish men on the earth for five months. Well, you're not going to see that after they're in the lake of fire. The second coming is not the beginning of a new earthly kingdom, but is the end of earthly history as we know it. The binding must be tied to Jesus' first coming, otherwise, Revelation 20 explicitly contradicts the eschatology of the Gospels and Epistles, which we saw in our last hour.
Okay, it's symbolic. It's very clearly symbolic. And the Bible gives us guides on what the symbolism means. A very long, indefinite period of time. Number five. <clears throat> In the premillennial view of the Battle of Gog and Magog, and that's not Russia with an Arab confederacy. Okay? <laughs> I didn't take the time. I was going to write a footnote on this, but I ran out of time. Uh, the modern... Uh, premillennial dispensational views of Gog and Magog and Russian conspiracy, you know, Hagee, that guy in Houston or wherever he is. It's all complete nonsense made up out of thin air. The Gog and Magog are the apostate nations deceived by Satan, verses 8 and 9, against Jesus, makes no sense at all for two reasons. Number A, if one takes the verses literally, and the nations which have apostatized through the release of Satan from the abyss came against Christ and the saints which are in a defensive military position behind the walls in Jerusalem. If you take it literally, that's the position you have to take. Jesus and all the saints are in Jerusalem. They're walled up behind the walls in a defensive posture, surrounded by the armies. Well, why would the glorified Savior and the millions of glorified immortal saints be afraid of bullets, missiles, and bombs? Why? They cannot die. They cannot be hurt by such things at all. Our Lord could pass through solid walls. You could hit him with a nuclear weapon. It wouldn't phase him one bit. You could shoot him a thousand times with a machine gun, with a 50 caliber. Wouldn't phase him or the saints, glorified saints at all. They can't die. They're immortal. Moreover, the resurrected and thrown Messiah is no longer in a state of humiliation where he can be physically hurt or abused by persecutors. He is glorified and has all authority over everything in heaven and earth. With a word, he could obliterate all of his enemies in a split second. The premillennial scenario, if you think about it, in the context of Scripture, is totally absurd. In addition, and I'm sure people haven't thought about this, but such an interpretation places Jesus in a position of suffering another form of personal humiliation long after his exaltation. And such a view is clearly impossible. He's not in a position to be persecuted once he rose from the dead. You can persecute his people. But the idea that Christ is walled up behind the walls of Jerusalem, surrounded by enemies with all these uh, glorified saints, that's just simply ridiculous. There are also practical objections to the literal view. <clears throat> now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Could all the resurrected glorified saints from all of human history, we're talking going all the way back to Adam and Eve, the patriarchs, together with all living saints fit within Jerusalem? Could they? We're talking about several million people. Did all Christians, uh, did all non-Christians from every corner of planet Earth get plane tickets to Israel to be present? Uh, excuse me, did all Christians from every corner of planet Earth get plane tickets to Israel to be present for this final climactic battle? The scenario, the scene, is clearly symbolic, not literal. You've got all the saints holed up in Jerusalem. Well, if that's literal, how do they all get there? Do they gather there? To even gather people from all over the world that were professing Christians, it would take years. It would take a, a, at least a year. And then B. <clears throat> Revelation 29b informs us that the persecuted mortal saints need to be delivered by fire coming down out of heaven. 
But according to the clear didactic passages regarding the deliverance of the persecuted saints by fire, where is the glorified Christ when the fire falls? Where is he? Is he holed up in Jerusalem, waiting for fire to deliver him, who's glorified and all-powerful and doesn't need any delivering? <clears throat> is he on earth waiting to be delivered? No. What does the Bible say? He descends with the fire. The exalted king descends from heaven in order to deliver the saints and destroy his enemies. <clears throat> Here's one of the clearest passages of the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 9. And this is given because they were being persecuted and this is their comfort. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels <clears throat> in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, often fire is a symbol of punishment in Scripture. That's very clear. Paul alludes here to the Greek Septuagint version of Isaiah 66, 15 and 16. Listen to this. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots, like a whirlwind, to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword the Lord will judge all flesh. So Christ, Christ is glorified in this coming to earth to justice and judgment. He's not, he doesn't need to be delivered. He's the deliverer. Christ is the Savior. Christ is the glorified King. He doesn't need to be humiliated a second time. He doesn't need to be delivered by God. He is God, and he is the God-man, and he delivers the saints. His power, glory, and justice is visibly, visibly displayed. And this event is quite different than the humiliation and need to be rescued by God behind the walls of a literal earthly Jerusalem. In addition, we must keep in mind that in the New Covenant era, Jerusalem is no longer a holy city. It's not holy. It's not any more special than Detroit. It's not a holy city. It's not set apart by God. It's not a sanctified city. It's no longer holy in the New Covenant era. For the kingdom of God has been taken away from national Israel and given to the New Covenant multinational church. Read, later, Matthew 21.43, where Jesus says that explicitly. Paul says, uh, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. Christians, Paul says, belong to the Jerusalem above. The earthly Jerusalem, Paul says, corresponds to Hagar and is in bondage, Galatians 4.26. Believers are exhorted to go outside of the earthly Jerusalem. For here on earth we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come, Hebrews 13.13-14 and C11.16. The camp of the saints of the beloved city represent the new covenant church which will be mercilessly persecuted by civil magistrates and unbelievers when Satan is released for a little while. Revelation 20, verse 9. So this idea that Jerusalem is somehow holy, it's based on dispensationalism, which believes God has two separate peoples, the Jews, an earthly people, a fleshly people, and the Church of Christ. And that's absolute nonsense. Yes, Jews can be saved. Yes, Jews are part of the kingdom, if they believe in Christ. Paul said, circumcision of the flesh is worthless. 
if you don't have circumcision of the Spirit in Romans, in the book of Romans. He also says something similar in Galatians. He says it a number of times in Galatians. He calls the church the true circumcision. Jesus calls the Jews, the synagogues that were persecuting Christians in the first century, synagogues of Satan. Now, before we examine the devil's final doom, let's just very briefly reflect on the restriction of Satan's power and its consequences after the victorious resurrection of Christ. First, <clears throat> the gospel is to be preached throughout the whole world, and, then there, and there will be success for number one. The ascended Christ sent his Holy Spirit into the church, empowering it, Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> you notice that occurs before they go out to the nations. It also occurs during a feast when all the proselytes that are Gentiles from all over the Roman Empire were in the city. And they heard them speaking in tongues in their own languages, and it names all the different countries. <clears throat> Number two, the Holy Spirit will accompany this preaching, Raising dead hearts, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, 1 Corinthians 2, 13 to 16. Opening blind eyes and deaf ears, enlightening minds and drawing men to Christ. John 3, 3 and following, 1 John 2, 20. And I forgot to write down the 1 Corinthian passage, but I'll figure it out later. Number three, Satan has been restricted by Christ so that persecution will fail. Infiltration will be restricted and the kingdom of darkness overtaken. Matthew 12, 29, 16, 18, John 12, 31, and 32, and 46. Will there be persecution? Yes. Will there be the murder of many Christians, even thousands of Christians? Yes. Happened by the Roman Empire. The Roman Catholics did it in France, killed 16,000 Huguenots. The uh, prelatists, wicked civil magistrates under the kings of England, murdered 18,000 Presbyterian Covenanters. Yes, there will be persecution, but will they succeed? No, they will not. Will the church be corrupted by false doctrine, demonic doctrine, and men who are followers of Satan being pretending they're ministers of the gospel? Yes, it's happened. Look at Roman Catholicism. Look at Arminianism. But will they succeed? No. There are true churches all over the place teaching the truth. The true gospel is still spreading. Wherever the gospel and Christian discipleship prevails, it dissipates idolatry and darkness. 1 John 3, 8, 2 Timothy 1, 10. It greatly reduces demonic possession in society and affects a nation's laws so that crime, sexual perversion, and ethical anarchy is greatly restrained. Beloved, look at our cities today. These democratic-controlled cities who are run by total Satanists. If you walk around, now, obviously... The, there's tons of drug addicts, these homeless people, and they're defecating and shooting up drugs and everything, and there's all kinds of crazy violence and crime. But it looks like there's also demon possession, if you ask me. Some of these people are, act demon-possessed. And that's going to, as, as our civil magistrates become more and more satanic, and the people follow them, like they just did in this last election, <laughs> sad to say, we'll see more demonic possession in society and more crazy things. People who, for no good reason, grab an innocent woman and throw her in front of a train. Or walk up and crack a bottle over somebody's head. For no reason at all. Simply to do it. The great success of Western culture was due to the influence of the Bible and the Christian world and life view. 
There's nothing that makes me angrier than watching these intellectual atheists, and there's really famous ones that are on YouTube, and they're so full of arrogance. They're so, oh, we know everything and everything. They don't know diddly squat. Europe and America and the West would be no better than the darkest parts of Africa with incredible violence and voodoo and magic and darkness if it was not for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Science is a development of Christianity. True science. What we have now is descending into satanic science. But true science and the development of economics and culture came from Christianity. When a culture or society rejects Jesus Christ in the Bible for paganism, for example, Islam, <clears throat> or secular humanism, Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, the Democrats, or claims to assume a position of neutrality toward Jesus and his authoritative word, most modern evangelicals. There will be a revival of demonic activity, ethical chaos, sexual perversion, and a great hostility to Bible-believing Christianity. Matthew 12, 43-45, Revelation 20, 7-8. There's only one way to conquer the kingdom of the devil. And Christ gave us the means, preaching the true gospel, teaching the whole counsel of God. Don't compromise to satisfy these secular humanists. Don't compromise to satisfy those who claim to have neutrality. Don't be an idiot. The evangelicals set aside the law of God in the 1920s and 30s, and what did it get us? The Satanists took over all the robes of society. People vote bad because they're spiritually in darkness, and they... I mean, the Democrats accomplished nothing. Everything they touched turned to crap. And yet they were did great in the last election. Second, in the New Covenant era, we have a great, greater effusion of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 1 to 21, Hebrews 8, 8 to, 8 to 13. And the intercessory work of Christ as our advocate with the Father, uh, John... 1715, Hebrews 7, 22 to 28, 8, 1 to 6, James 5, 16. Consequently, true believers have victory over the assaults of the devil, 1 John 4, 4, Matthew 16, 18, are kept from the power of the evil one, John 17, 5, and will have progressive sanctification and genuine ethical progress in this life, Romans 6, 3 to 14, 20 to 22, 7, 4 to 6. Christians True believers cannot be possessed by the devil. They cannot be possessed by demons. They cannot have that happen to them because of the Holy Spirit and the protection of Christ. Our Lord's victory over the devil, however, does not mean that we are not responsible to watch and pray against temptation. Matthew 26, 41, and of course the Lord's Prayer 6, 13. Matthew 6, 13. Place the moral law of God in our hearts and meditate on it. Psalm 119, 11 and 15, etc., etc. Read the whole Psalm, 119, Proverbs 4, 1 to 2 and 4. Put on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6, 11 to 18, which we'll look at in another sermon. And resist the devil by not toying with inner temptations, but saying no to sin and replacing bad, unethical thoughts, words, and actions with righteous, biblical alternatives. Ephesians 4, 21 to 32, James 1, 21 to 27. Read Ephesians 4. He says, look, put this off, put this on. Put this off, put this on. You're a lazy bum, you're a thief, quit doing that. Get a good job, make some money, 
so you have extra money to help those who are poor. You're a habitual liar. Now start speaking the truth in love so you can help people instead of lying to them. And then we come finally to Satan's final demise. After Satan is released for a little while and stirs up a great war against Christ's church, our Lord returns in flaming fire and executes vengeance on the devil. And let me read Revelation 27 to 10 again. Now in the thousand years that expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went upon the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Oh, and I forgot, uh, Hal Lindsey and the modern dispensational premillennials. Oh, this includes a 200 million man army from China, too. 200 million man army is going to march all the way from China, all the way to Israel. How's it going to happen? Well, according to Hal Lindsey and others, the Euphrates River is going to dry up and they're just going to walk right across. And all those countries in between are just going to let them march right through their countries. <laughs> The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake in fire. Oh, the, they went up to the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake in fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now those people who are not converted and discipled by the sword that proceeds out of Jesus' mouth, Revelation uh, 19.15, but rather side with Satan against Christ's church and the kingdom of God are obliterated by fire from heaven. Then they will be cast along with Satan into the lake of fire. Whether fire from heaven is a literal fire or simply symbolic of divine judgments of some kind and destruction, we cannot be sure. But we do know that Jesus and his holy angels accompany this fire, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 9. Jesus comes in flaming fire to wreak vengeance on his enemies and protect the church from persecution. Those passages harmonize beautifully. And that's how Jesus comforts the saints who are being persecuted by the Roman Empire. He says nothing about the millennium. He says, oh look, I know you're suffering, but I'm going to come back in flaming fire, and I'm going to kill all these people and cast them into the lake of fire. The imagery of the second coming. And destruction of the wicked is similar to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19, 24, and 25, and 26. And the judgment of the rebels in the wilderness of Kadesh, Numbers 16, 31, and 33. See, God likes to use fire for judgment. In these examples, real fire is used. In the case of Nadab and Abihu, they were killed by fire that went out from the Lord and devoured them. Leviticus 10, 2. And God's judgment on Edom. In Isaiah 34, 9 to 11, we read this. Its stream shall be turned into pitch. That's tar. That burns really good. And it's dust into brimstone. Brimstone. Its land shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched. Day, night or day, its smoke shall ascend forever. So Satan was defeated by Christ at the cross in the empty tomb. Totally defeated. The head of the serpent was crushed. Definitively at that time. But his final judgment does not occur until the second coming. 
Jesus was glorified at his resurrection, ascension, and enthronement. But the final act of glorification, and this all the theologians agree, the final act of his glorification is his presiding over the final judgment. In his state of humiliation, the devil tempted him and persecuted him to the death. But in his exaltation, he cast Satan into the final place of judgment, the lake of fire. Satan will suffer punishment for eternity along with the beast and the false prophet, the anti-Christian statist and the false religionist who have been Satan's greatest allies against the church will suffer the same punishment as their master. These liberal Protestants, these liberal Romanists, these liberals who side with the Democrats and side with Putin in Russia, that Antichrist, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, who are in favor of murdering pregnant women and rape and pillage and theft will be cast into the lake of fire with the devil, their father. The king on his white lustrous throne will say, Matthew 25, 41, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 25, 30. To the antinomians, the heretical ministers and all false prophets, Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, Matthew 7.23. You who advocate sodomite rights, you who advocate sodomite marriage and the abomination of sodomy and the abomination of transgendered movement, you who advocate premarital sex and no-fault divorce, go into the lake of fire where you belong. You've spit on my law. Now, some scholars believe that hell and the lake of fire is the same place. But there seems to be a distinction made between the two in the book of Revelation. Hell is the pit of the abyss, a prison where souls await the final judgment. Demons are let out of this prison to bring calamity on the wicked, Revelation 9, 1 to 12. Satan also still operates as the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, 2, even though he has been cast out, Revelation 20, 12, 9, and chained, Revelation 21 to 3. But the lake of fire is the final place of punishment. And for unbelievers, is associated with the second death, Revelation 2.11, 2014, 21.8. Those who reject Christ and follow Satan will be resurrected, both body and soul, only to be cast into the lake of fire. So there seems to be an intensification of punishment at the second coming. Yes, Adolf Hitler and Stalin and Charles Manson, they're all burning in hell right now. They're suffering right now. But it's going to be rough when they get their bodies back and then both body and soul. And Jesus taught this himself. Both body and soul will be come together to be cast into the lake of fire. The fire of hell. And keep in mind, the devil and his followers are not annihilated. That's a false doctrine, annihilationism. The Bible doesn't teach that. They're not burned up, but will be tormented day and night forever and ever, Revelation 20, verse 10. So let me tell you, people, faith in Christ is an ultimate concern. There's really nothing more important than whether you believe in, believe in what Jesus Christ said and what he did. If you don't believe that Christ is truly God, a very God, that he's both man and God in one person, that he came to this earth and the incarnation was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, and that he lived a perfect sinless life, and that he died on a cross, according to the scriptures, to pay for the sins of his people, to burn out their penalty, 
and their curse of the law to remove it. If you don't believe that, you're going to have your place in the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, along with the devil and his angels. Believing in Jesus and rejecting the devil's worldview and plan is the most important thing that you can do. The expression, by the way, lake of fire, only occurs in the book of Revelation. 1920, 2010, uh, it occurs twice in verse 14, also in verse 15 and 21.8. As we have noted, it is identified as the second death. In Revelation 20.14, death and hell, Hades, are cast into the lake of fire. Now, death is the spiritual, and of course, eventually for every human being, physical state of all those who are not true believers in Christ. Now, believers experience the sting of death. They have physical death, but their souls immediately go to be with with Christ in paradise. Unbelievers are spiritually doomed. They're dead. They're separated from God's love, peace, and fellowship. Hell is the place where the souls of unbelievers go after death. The pale horse rider brought death and hell behind him, Revelation 6.8. That the unsaved state as a result of judicial condemnation and the very place of punishment for lost souls, is then cast into the lake of fire. Is this a pleasant doctrine? No. It's tough. But God is holy. And if you don't understand the holiness of God, you'll never understand eternal punishment. You'll never understand the doctrine of hell. You'll never understand the doctrine of the lake of fire. The second death indicates total death the complete and final judgment and destruction executed against God's enemies. It indicates finality. Death, rebellion, and hell itself are powerless and completely banished from the new heavens and the new earth. If one considers hell and the lake of fire to be the same, which some people do, quite a few theologians do, then one could say that hell is transformed into the lake of fire. Life outside of Christ is satanic and will lead to eternal fire and destruction. And Jesus warned professing Christians. This is said to professing Christians. If you confess Christ, John 15, 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and they throw them into the fire and they are burned. Yes, you have to believe in Christ. But you also have to confess him. And you have to persevere in the faith. You have to live it. You have to continue. Are you saved by good works? Absolutely not. You're saved solely by faith in Christ. Solely by faith, solely by Christ. But once you are saved by Christ, you're responsible to persevere in the faith, attend the means of grace, and follow God's moral law habitually. Does that mean you're sinless? Absolutely not. If we say that we have sin, John says, we call God a liar. But if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If we, confess, him, if we uh, confess our sins, he's just to forgive us our sins. Now, some Christians believe that Satan and the demonic host will participate in the torment of unbelievers in the lake of fire. What occurs in the final place of punishment, other than regret, despair, and great suffering, we are not told. The Bible does make it clear, however, that there are different degrees of punishment and suffering on how abundant and wicked one's works were done on earth. The more wicked you are, the more severe your punishment. The more knowledge you had about Christ and the gospel and rejected, the, the more severe your punishment will be. It says in Luke 
Jesus said in Luke, some will be beaten with some many stripes, some will be beaten with some stripes. Obviously, the serial killer is going to be suffer way greater punishment than somebody who's, you know, just led an outwardly moral life, but who, who was a wicked sinner. We can infer from this that Satan will receive the greatest torments, for he fell from the highest privileges and was totally aware that his actions were wrong and rebellious. So there, it hasn't happened yet. When Christ returns, it'll happen. The defeat at the cross, the crushing of the head of the cross and the empty tomb will come to pass eventually, perfectly, at the second coming of Christ. And this includes all unbelievers. I hope you believe in Christ. I pray that you believe in Christ. But if you don't believe in Christ, you know what's coming. You're going to be cast, the, king, the king of kings will be on that white throne, and he'll personally cast you into the lake of fire. Go into the lake of fire, you cursed! You rejected my gospel. You rejected the word of God. You sided with Satan. You sided with Joe Biden. You sided with Nancy Pelosi. Go where you deserve to go. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to appreciate your dear son and what he's done for us. Help us to love him more and more. To be obedient to his every command. We cannot appreciate him as we really ought. For what he's done is just totally amazing. It's almost beyond our comprehension. But help us to love him and be obedient. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. Cause us to obey your holy law. Bend our hearts to love your law, to love your son, to obey, to not grieve the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.